Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone on this new episode of Let's Talk AI. Super happy to be here today with Mehdi. Uh, this is an episode I was really looking forward. I think we can provide a lot of value. A quick remind, a quick remember, sorry, what we're doing uh, at Let's Talk AI. We want to help everyone have a better understanding of the data and AI field. Uh, speaking with experts and professionals today, we're with Mehdi. Mehdi, how are you doing? I'm doing uh, great. Uh, summer vibe is coming back in Berlin, so... It's nice. Awesome. You're based in Berlin. Um, how about, uh, I think, what we like to do on this episode, maybe for the people who might not know you. Um, so Mehdi Waza, uh, I didn't pronounce your uh, last name before, but um, can you introduce yourself a little bit uh, for the people who, n- who does not know you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been working at, mostly as a data engineer and I would say even like data platform engineer this past year, uh, but I'm not for a decade. So I started early with the on-premise uh, Hadoop era, moved to the cloud and just surfing on that wave because 10 years ago, data engineer was really just starting as a world definition, I would say. Um, I come from Belgium, Brussels, and four years ago, I decided to join a tech company, apply all around the world. and. Uh, Berlin was a good destination, so I joined a scale-up over there in fintech. I did other uh, scale-up there, uh, and I'll remote, uh, remotely also. And lately, I joined uh, a startup as a DevRel, so I'm switching gear a bit. But I've been doing content for the past two years now, uh, writing and YouTube. So that's uh, roughly about me. Awesome. Uh, I have many questions. I want to deep dive a little bit in the developer advocate role and, and what does it mean. Also, uh, I really enjoy coming back to this uh, Hadoop period and like how it, uh, how the how everything I've grown from uh, since then. So that will be a very interesting topic. Uh, maybe just to to understand you better um, and your vision as of today. Uh, what are you trying to achieve? or what are your goals or where is your attention at today? Yeah, it's it's pretty hard question. Like, what, <laughs> it's tough, uh, it's very it's deep. A, like... It's a good question and super <laughs> deep question. <laughs> it's, a, it's a therapy. Uh, yeah. So, no, uh, I mean, I, I, I spent actually quite some time recently when I was switching role uh, because I used to work for years as data engineer. And I realized that what I really do enjoy is just making uh, data content, but in a specific way that is, Mm. uh, I would say, entertaining, uh, because there is a lot of content over there, really good content, but Mm -hmm. most of the content are boring, I feel. Mm. Um, So I'm just trying to make this place uh, a bit more fun. 
and yet doing technology watch and all the other stuff and create this information for people uh this is something i really enjoy you know just to do and so if that can help and impact others like that's basically i would say my goal that's awesome uh, we'll be able to discuss a bit about content, content on LinkedIn, also how to level up and gain skills that can be interesting. Um, so as a third question, I won't go too deep. <laughs> I won't ask like a more profound even uh, question. I think um, I would love to ask you about a, a quick retrospective of your career and what you've been doing just so that we can have an idea of the path that you followed. Yeah. Um, so as I was saying, like in the early days, there was no definition, definition actually in data engineer when I started, I actually started as a BI developer, um, like Microsoft stack SSIS and so on. Um, and, and then there was this data science hype that was, uh, starting. And so I just took the job role name and, you know, uh, did a bit of that for uh, not a short time. Then I realized that I was actually spending a lot of time uh, on data engineering, like uh, a lot of data scientists actually are. Um, like data engineers, sorry, today are coming from data science uh, for that specific reason. But for my part, I, I barely did any, uh, I mean, long time job on as a data scientist. I quickly switched uh, to data engineer uh, because I just more like more the, 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 the base software engineering foundation that is around, uh, data engineer. Um, so I switching to that and then over the years, again, I realized like, oh, there is a wave of like everything related to the cloud. Right. So like that's, that was like kind of my, um, second jump where I say, okay, that's like maybe, uh, uh, interesting to jump on that. And also second, like the other thing is that I didn't start my working career as BI developer. Uh, I have a background in electronics engineering, so I think that's important to mention. And I just worked two years as, uh, in that sector, but more in telecom, uh, to before switching to data. Um, and so coming back straight forward to data engineer cloud era, just following that wave and then basically changing job. I've, I've been changing job a lot, but every time try to follow what's, what's the next trend, where can I maximize my learning? And so I was not, uh, of course, when you, you know, do a lot of job change, you can, uh, have a salary bump pretty easily, but sometimes that was not the case. That's my, sometimes was the other way around. I was losing money, but I was always maximize learning and on mid long term, it's, it's already always paying off because you get, uh, you get basically to see in five to six years way more than who has stayed in a single job. So yeah, cloud, um, around data engineering and just build on my skills and foundation from there. Um, and I think that the last part, like, as I was saying, is more everything related to content. I think that helped also my career even before joining, uh, starting as a DevRel. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and yeah, that's like reaching out senior and staff engineer and and then feeling a bit kind of bored to need a new challenge. So that's why I switched it to, the, to DevRel. 
That's super interesting. Um, uh, we'll get back to that and we'll get back to skills learning. I think we could discuss also productivity. How do you measure uh, um, like when you when it feels right to make a transition or where, like how much can I learn from this experience um, regardless of money? I think this is very interesting. Uh, but uh, you mentioned DevRel or um, Developer Advocate. Uh, can you explain a bit about this role? What does it mean for you? Because also, just before the, the, your answer, you mentioned that you started as a data scientist when the term was brand new. Is the term uh, Developer Advocate as new as when you started data scientist? Or is it something <laughs> that we've seen around? Like, uh, can you tell 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 us more about this role? I'm t I'm just jumping on you uh, on your role every time, you know. As soon as they appear, I see. <laughs> no, no. So, so you've so, been a prompt engineer, right? The last, no, last few months. Now I think like it's still re relatively new, but uh, how would I say? I think the challenge is different from like an IC because like there is a lot of different definition of a DevRel. But basically, I would say roughly, it's someone that still code because he needs to do tutorial or integration sometimes to promote something um, active within a community, uh, a technical community, speaking in person, do online content, written content. So it's a mix of different skills, right? I think where it's still new, so this, this has been there for quite a while. Uh, and before, I think it was mostly, there is still like a distinction with developer experience and developer advocate, mm -hmm. but it was more only developer experience in the sense you have the documentation website, you discuss with the developers, but you're not going to do a YouTube channel like back in the day, like 10 years ago, no one in tech was looking for content in YouTube, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So because of the learning of, uh, how people learn new things have been changed. And even now with TikTok, you need basically company also to adapt, uh, you know, when they promote their products. So I think this is where uh, the developer advocate is a bit larger and where the definition, this kind of role is, mm -hmm. is pretty new. If I would compare to data, I would say like dev, DevRel or uh, developer advocate is kind of the analytics engineer. So it's still new but at the same time it's overlapping with old role definition right. that we used to have um so yeah that's that's roughly at least from what i understand i've been working now for the past uh six seven months so still fair, fairly new for me awesome that gives a clear uh idea um I think what what I would like to to ask you about uh, I could ask you so many things. You, you've been a data engineering for a long for a long time. You have a, um, a degree in uh, in electrical engineer. You started as a, as a BI, so you've seen a lot of tech. You've seen a lot of uh, tech evolution also, and in your current role and through your career, um, how has data engineering and the tech in general used by teams evolved? And in, like, do you see any trend? Do you see any um, faster pace of um, new tech uh, arriving? Can you have some insights regarding the industry and technology in general and its evolution? Um, yeah, I think it's it's um, 
there is way more option to do uh, the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's normally easier, but you have more choice. So, <laughs> uh, so I would say like you have so much like product from, if you just look at the big cloud provider for a spe specific project, you say, let's say I want to run a data pipeline at scale, right? Uh, 10 years ago, you had to set up like an Hadoop cluster. You had like proprietary database, but not, not a lot of them. Like it's really one or two choice. Today, like any big cloud provider is offering the solution. There is third-party solution. And that's a lot of things to, to offer, which is nice, but it's from like an user point of view. And also, you know, job-wise, it can be uh, stressful and, and challenging. So I think that's like one of the trends. Uh, the other, obviously, is that a lot of things, especially as data engineering has been transitioned to common commodities. Mm -hmm. So we used to manage like machine. I, I really set up like a cluster with some machine that was in data center, like waiting four months to add a new machine <laughs> for setting up the cluster. And so you you learned a lot regarding fundamentals and, uh, and how things works behind the scene. And I think uh, today, in today's era, like new people coming in, and there is way more uh, people coming in be because of the hire, or because it's just easier to get in than it was before. Um, it's just challenging for them to learn also the, ba the the basic and the fundamental. Because if they say, "Okay, let's let's run a data pipeline at scale," I can just run a SQL query on a cloud data warehouse, right? But behind the scene, there is so much happening, things happening that you don't even see, right? Hmm. And you barely have to tune anything to make it work. So bottom line is uh, the technology is more affordable, so we have more user. But those user, it, they are kind of like more high level, so it's difficult for them to go back to foundation on basic. And there is just way more tooling than... Uh, it was before uh, a decade ago. And so all of that makes that the pace is faster, but I would argue that we still have so many new challenge that mm -hmm. at the end, like business value wise, I'm not saying that we like for some of the projects, definitely it's easier. We used to set up a cloud data warehouse and, you know, your first value get faster, but like for more complex projects, there is so much other problem that we created while finding solution that I'm not sure if like it's it's such a drastic be uh, you know speeds than it was before. Right, makes sense. Makes At company sense. level, right? At yes. company level, if you if we come back to the ground as a data engineer, how many projects I'm gonna do this month, right? Um, I think there is a lot of happening around AI and LLM and all like a lot of innovation and all product, as I said, but at the end, you, there is only, you know, a certain amounts of information that you can handle and, a, and one or two tools that you can implement within your uh, work mm -hmm. uh, to, to have the job done. I see. I see. Previously, you mentioned that, yeah, that you switch uh, um, quite multiple time jobs. Uh, and that you seek optimizing your growth uh, and your learning. Uh, and based on what you share with, with, uh, with the evolution of technology through the, the past years, 
Um, how do you go about learning? Do you have any frameworks? And how do you go about uh, which skills am I going to learn? And um, and yes, can you share a bit about how do you focus on how often do you learn and and how do you approach it? Yeah, I think one key thing I've been repeating, and I don't see a lot of people repeating that, mm-hmm. um, is doing interviews. Like it start from there. Um, for multiple reasons. The first one is that you may have like an assessment at your current place on how you're performing and feedback and so on, mm-hmm. but they are biased in different ways, right? So the, the best way to evaluate yourself on the market, you know, on a blank page to see what is my value, what am I missing, right? Uh, what kind of technology is requiring? Is it like completely different from what I'm doing or no close or, oh, there is this tech which is happening a lot. Start, what, what is this? So not interviewing in a sense like I want to change the job, but just having an habit to regularly interviewing um, to just evaluate yourself and measure uh, basically the, the skill gap. I think that's mm-hmm. the best. Second, it like it bring of course you a view more on the market wise, so you can see what you are actually missing, um, either in terms of salary, but also in terms of uh, of technology. So you can go back to work and say, hey, uh, I heard some company were doing that because when you do an interview, you learn also about a technology stack, you know, from the company. You can ask questions how they operate. Um, so it's kind of like a free technical blog that you have uh, for you. Um, and that that's like almost zero cost. Like you pass like the first or two interview, you know, you don't need to have a job offer to have those insights. So mm-hmm. uh, the point of interviewing is not like to do always the, the full thing, but just getting um, practice that. And the, the last point is finally just having this interview muscle uh, because uh, getting interview is like, uh, it, it's really just exhausting, right? And if you haven't done it, like for even for a year or two, you have to update some information. It's just super hard. But if you keep like that as an habit, like typically I do it every four to six months. So interviews, even if I'm super happy at my job, so let's let's try let's try it out. Uh, so I think like that's the key thing in my career that helped me out. Uh, to learn and to evolve because I could always see, okay, this is, uh, I think, the next thing what, what I, where I want to go. And I think that the, the only downside is that, you know, the green seems always greener at the other place. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to keep this mindset that you're going to, like, there is stuff at your work which is generally nice and you're going to miss those and there are going to be other problems that, you cannot see them at in the interview process, right? But that's totally that's totally fine. I think, but you need to keep that in mind. Um, and if you keep that in mind, I think it's 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 fine to make a, a good decision of whether you should change or not, because mm-hmm. you should not like just you know chase salary or change every time. But every time I was changing, there was really a good situation where this is a really nice project with like talented people it, that's difficult to have like all those kind of thing or uh, or this is a project to move to berlin and i know this is a tech hub city where i have other opportunities and network to do so 
yeah, so just wait every time. Uh, pro and con is not easy, but there, there will be things that you will regret anyway. That's all the time like this, yeah. Awesome. And so two questions based on, on, on this information. So you mentioned that you would go in interviews uh, from periods to four to six months, even though you don't necessarily have the intention. So my first question is, uh, like, how hard do you go on interviews? I would assume that it depends on your situation, yeah. but I think that could be interesting to have like an idea of a number. And secondly, let's say you're in this phase of uh, interviews and you see that you... There are some new technologies, for example, Databricks or Snowflakes have new features, new concepts. Uh, we're talking about data mesh, we're talking about LLMs, and, and you see this in this role, in these interviews. How do you go about getting those fundamentals that might be missing to your skills so far? Yeah. So it's a really good question. And like, so, oh, seriously, I'm going for the interview. I think uh, there is always a minimum. Um, because you, you never know what kind of opportunity you can get afterwards, right? And I don't want to waste people's time. So I'm not doing say, okay, let's, let's do it because I have to do it, but I'm not getting the job. Like I just genuinely try to, uh, you know, do my best. Mm -hmm. uh, now regarding the technical thing, there was thing where I'm like, okay, that's like, either they give me a take-home test, which is way too big. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that I was like, that's too much for me. Uh, or I realized there is a gap in my knowledge, right? And that gave me an information and I'm like, okay, let's, let's try it out. Uh, I think I'm, you know, I can maybe make it work like just a, as a challenge. So I think it's really depending the situation on my, you know, my current uh, life and so on, because it takes time. Um, so I would say like every four or six months, I do two to three interview, something like that. You know, but rather doing small and seriously than a lot of them. Um, but what I've done also, and I wrote a blog about that, is like this kind of uh, interview marathon where I take a break, um, you know, on specific reasons. So I leave the job and I have nothing. And I take like two to three months to, you know, just sit back, uh, have a bit of a perspective. And then like do a crazy uh, interview round. So like probably applying to 10 to 15 company and do, you know, just that uh, for during the day. Um, and what's really nice is that you have full time, full focus, your mind is fresh and some interview just start to be super easy because, you know, it's all the same. Like, tell me about one project where blah, 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 blah. So, and once you said it two times, like you get really good at it. Um, so, so yeah, like two, two basically situation I would recommend is like either you do two or three every six months, do it seriously, mm -hmm. or you do a break and there you can like really do uh, a big uh, marathon. But I would argue that you can do it in a week because interview process can last. People go on online days. So I would say to do a proper marathon, you, you need at least a month or two off. And that's mm -hmm. a lot. So you need to kind of see with your saving or money-wise that you can afford it. Mm -hmm. Personally, it was always worth it because the thing when you do a, a marathon is that there is high chance that you will end up with multiple offers in the end. Mm -hmm. And that's the best way to negotiate. So basically the money that you will kind of lose of taking one or two months off, 
you will probably get it back uh, pretty fast uh, compared to basically doing this on the side of your job and doing one uh, to interview and having one job offer every six months. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, also regarding learning, uh, you mentioned that two years ago you started uh, doing content on, on LinkedIn um, and other platforms, writings, uh, uh, and um, you, you have this role. Um, so my question is, how much do you spend on side projects or building things before you started writing? Um, when you started writing, like, were you always like playing with technology, playing with things on, on your own and, and trying things out to understand the concepts? Or, or were you using your job to kind of get all this knowledge and experience? And, and yes, can, can you share maybe about that? Yeah. That's interesting. I think you can, you, you know, you can have job where you keep always learning new things and you don't need to do side projects because like, you know, I don't know, you are in a startup and you change hat like every three months or you are in a big corporate and you're changing team. You can ask for a changing team. Mm -hmm. uh, I know Google has program like this and so on. Uh, but the thing I think for me, it was like, as soon as I get bored at work or it's kind of like the same thing, mm -hmm. I used to do some side project. And, uh, and then maybe at work, you know, you have ups and downs and then, you know, work starts to be exciting again because there is a new project again. Mm -hmm. So I do a bit less. And then I think once like it starts to be really, really boring what I feel like I'm running circle and there is less, uh, opportunity for me to grow or at least not as fast as, as I want, then basically I was switching and I was switching based on like kind of the side project and interview to give me a grasp on like, okay, I think this is really cool. This is the kind of work I want to do if I want to transition to another specific corporal. Um, so I think it's like a combination of, uh, of basically taking time when it's needed mm -hmm. because you don't need to do all the time some side projects for sure uh because you can just also really burn out uh, about that i think there is like kind of an anxiety where there is a lot of software engineers out there sharing hey i built this over the weekend i built that yeah cool i went to the mini golf with my family over the weekend i was okay so <laughs> the point is um it, there, there is kind of this pressure where you need to and i don't think you should yes. uh I think it depends on everyone's objective, everyone's situation in life, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's but I would argue that if you've never done a side project for like two years at your job, that's I feel like it's suspicious. And a side project doesn't need to build or code something, right? It can be writing a blog. Like writing a blog is also I consider that as a side project or mm -hmm. whatsoever. Um, so I think it's you, you need to mitigate basically the time you have available. And when you start to get bored at work, that's probably a good sign. Like, let, yeah, just try it out on new things. See if you like it and see also to interview if, uh, if there is opportunity for you for that to, to switch to that. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, this is very interesting. Uh, um, I think I would have multiple questions. I would like to ask you about productivity because it is very interesting how how you for example in the when you share 
I'm going to take two to three months, but then I'm going to have the ability to negotiate like no one on the market and have like the best offer possible. And then you will more than get back from this three months period. It seems like you have like a very good understanding of how to contract efforts into make it the most valuable possible, but having uh, like sync time as a very big asset. So uh, can you share a bit about um, your, your like your vision, your values, your productivity, yeah. like how do you organize? How do you see, how do you see time uh, and like the importance of time and also balancing uh, um, work life balance? Yeah. Um I, I think content like really brought me these eyes where even if I'm like barely monetizing any of my content, I think like the few dollars I made like opened my eyes to say there is no, I would say, linear relationship between the time and the results of your project. And the problem is that as a standard IC, so individual contributor, data engineer, you basically, you evaluate based on your project, but basically you have classically a time nine to five, right? Mm. And I think like the big thing for me is like when I start to write some blogs and I realized like some blogs were really working well, like they, like my one of the my first blog that blew up and I get like, I, I had like barely any audience and I made like 300 bucks uh, for that in like two months, but it took me, okay, four hours to work, right? And so this blog has been shared by a lot of people, has been viewed by a lot of people, and I get some money. And I spent three months for a project that I'm not super proud of, right? Mm -hmm. And which is difficult to share to other people outside of the company. So you see, like, if I put things in perspective of, like, my time, uh, what I'm proud of, Mm -hmm. uh, I felt like, okay, actually some piece of my content I'm, or some side project that I've done, I'm way more proud than some project I've run in, in, in companies, right? Mm -hmm. And when I start to have this thing, this connection, then uh, I started to value, as you mentioned, a bit more my time and how, uh, uh, how I spend it. And so, like, coming back to this interview marathon, that's a bit also what triggers me is, like, Okay, it, it's also a, like coming back to finance, it's, it's a question of uh, how much risk you can tolerate, right? It's like when you invest in stocks or whatever, uh, you, you invest into a certain amount of money that you are comfortable to do so, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even if you have a lot of money, it's just like, what are you comfortable to bet? And here it's the same. It's like, what, what are you comfortable to bet in terms of time? But for me, um, that that's a no brainer because I'm going to spend a lot of time uh, at my, you know, on, uh, as an employee. So I think like, you know, if you think of it like two months period break for interviewing, it's, it's peanuts, right? Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, do you feel that the, the, like the way you manage your time and the way you value your time, I mean, the, I kind of imagine the answer. Maybe this is um, an obvious, but I'm, I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you feel that the way you uh, you value your time have changed through time? 
Um, but this is like related to what you were saying. I think what I'm trying to ask is how much, um, like for example, I would assume when we start uh, a career, sometimes we're like, uh, what in most cases or in general, we don't have much, so we're willing to risk a lot, but because we don't have much, we don't have, we're not risking that much. So do you feel that you were risking more at the beginning than you can risk today in terms of uh, the intention, not the, the quantity? Like for example, yeah. two, three months when you started, it's huge, because, but today you have kind of leverage, but do you feel that you were risking more and higher at a younger stage? And that today you've gained confidence in like, how do you, can you share about yeah. that? How do you manage this leverage, this ratio? I, I, I think there is two things. There is like young people starting, they, they don't have like a girlfriend, they don't have kids, so they can really grind at work, like spend hours, go party, wake up late and still going to work. They don't care. And that's fine. Right. And so the point here is that they have more time accessible and they could take also more risk, but they don't feel like it's needed. And I think for me, it's like, it was a bit like that. Like I had a lot of time before, like I, I wish I, I was, I, I started content before, but yeah, that was not like just something important. I was just spending like a lot of time at work, mm -hmm. um, sometimes extra hours, but like the more you grow and get older, you just think about what's your priority in life, right? And especially when you start to build a family, then time start to be way more valuable. And and that's funny because then you think, okay, how can I make the most of, of this time? <laughs> But you have way less than before, right? So uh, it's a bit sad. I think there is like human entrepreneurs, we can see them. And actually, uh, I realized that, that most of the, uh, the tech content creators have a huge audience most of them don't have a family. Uh, I've been speaking to some of them that have, and they, they, like, they have like crazy productivity you know, mindsets. Um, and it's like, that's just because you, you can travel anywhere. You don't have, there is a lot of things that uh, you can do. Um, so I think, I think it's a question of like, just opening these, these eyes, right? For me, it took me a couple of years And it's a bit sad because I think like I could have like had this eye-opening experience before, mm. uh, but it's just that as more as you grow, you re revisit your priority, you have less time. And so you just try to make the, the most of it. Right. Right. Makes sense. Um, just before asking you, I think it can be very interesting to have your point of view on, on, Um, job applications in the world in general, not necessarily speaking in Europe. But before that, I would like to ask you about content creation. Um, so first of all, how, how did you got into content creation? What made you start writing your first blog? Um, why, what was yeah. that thing that, that launched it? Uh, yeah, for me, it was pretty simple. Um, I was going to the Databricks Summit, so which was called the Spark Summit back then. And I think I had the deal because like tickets are pretty expensive that I would just do uh, a presentation internally to uh, the team because I had uh, the authorization and the budget to go there. 
Um, and so I did a blog post. I said, oh, let's, let's do, I did a presentation. Let's, let's do a blog post. And back then it was reshared by Databricks because there was like not that content vibe like as it is today. I think uh, it was three years ago, but it's evolved like so fast. I think my mm -hmm. first blog. And so I realized, oh, but there is like actually interest of people reading this and it's even reshared by Databricks. So let's, mm -hmm. let's uh, give it a bit more try. And so I think the point here is that for me, it was actually low effort and it was just like, I did this presentation now, you know, internally. So translating that to a blog uh, was okay. I mean, it still took me a long time for the first blog, of course. Um, but it was mostly the intention, like just write it down my thoughts for me and, and let's see. And I think you shouldn't like chase any number or whatsoever against just maximize learning for yourself. So put your, your thoughts on paper for your future, uh, for your future self. And if it can help, uh, someone else, so good. Uh, but just start from there because getting better at writing is anyway, good for your job. You write every day, like most people write every day more than I speak to Microsoft teams or Slack. Right. Um, so it's a really valuable, just skills to, uh, um, to train. So this is like, this is how I started my journey. And then I moved to, to YouTube because I realized, oh, there is tech people over there also and people watching video about data engineering over there. So, uh, let's go for it. And this is something I also really enjoy. It's take way more time. Um, but that's basically kind of like how, how it gets started. Uh, hmm. So you started writing posts on YouTube, um, starting writing blogs, first blog with uh, Databricks and going on YouTube. Yeah. Um, I feel like when, when we read any book, for example, Traction, and we see all the, all the techniques for, for a brand to, to show their products and to, to have a better SEO um, and so on. I feel like content creation and how, and like blogs in general, um, the role that they play in, in whatever we want to do or how many people we want to reach, uh, have changed tremendously, but this is a personal opinion. So I would like to ask you as a content yep. creator, how do you see that content have changed through, through, through the last years? And also how do you think LLMs, uh, impact content creation? Yeah. yeah. So the thing is that there, it, it's really simple. There is like short, uh, short term, um, I would say content. So social Twitter, LinkedIn. And then there is this tale of blog posts or YouTube video, as you said, to ECO people uh, search thing. One of my first uh, blog posts, which was popular, there was a meme. It was a life in a day of data engineer. And there is a meme. And this meme has ranked really high. So if you type data engineer meme on Google image, my blog is still like ranked in the top 10. <laughs> and this wow. is the only reason why I got like a first traction on, on the blog. It's mm -hmm. like I realized that. There's just a lot of people searching for a meme picture, not interesting in my, uh, in my writing. <laughs> anyway, um, so there is a long tail into blog posts, definitely. And so I think it's, it's just a matter of combination, right? You basically write those long form and you promote it on, on, on short, on LinkedIn or uh, on, on Twitter, etc. But yeah, nobody's going to search content after two months on LinkedIn or Twitter. So it's really content which is kind of lost. 
so it's really, I feel dangerous. And you can see like a lot of people that started on LinkedIn or Twitter, then they're branching out to long form, uh, either to YouTube or to a blog because they realize, yeah, um, that's not where my content is going to sustain and where I can build uh, a relationship with my audience. And now coming back to your second question regarding LLM. Yeah, uh, I think like writing blogs is going to be fade out because there is a lot of content that can be, you know, semi-generated, right? Mm -hmm. So people still need to figure it out. I think good content, writing content, writing by, by people and not uh, chat GPT will always stand out. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just like more crowdy. There is just more noise, right? Um, my personal opinion is that I feel like I, I want to focus more on YouTube. I like video. It's mm -hmm. not like everybody, but you don't need to show your face also to do a YouTube video. Um, and I think like YouTube and just a video for content has way more dimension. And it's still something that is a bit hard to fully auto-generate, right? So mm. there is way, the, the entry barrier uh, to do a proper video educative video is, is higher. You could do even with your phone and explain something, uh, you know, on TikTok without any edit. And I think it's still hard to get it right, right? Because you need to have the good storytelling, the presence and so mm. on. So uh, what I'm saying is like, it's not just about the the techniques and the light and so on. It's, it's, it's everything related to just video content. Uh, mm. So written content, I think gonna be a bit fed out, but still, I think going strong, uh, but yeah, that's like mostly my take. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think, uh, I am aligned. I think that, um, that, uh, we can, we can argue that the, 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 the time people can focus, uh, have decreased, which might be the case, but also I think people are more exigent in terms of what they want to consume. And so by doing so, this is why we relate to short content. We relate to authenticity, credibility, personal branding, because if you're doing a video and I know it's you doing it and I've seen a few of your contents, then this is your personal branding and, and I will be more likely to, to watch more of your content. And I think that this is something that is going to be uh, like to play a huge role in the up upcoming uh, investments for companies, startups, um, just having like, people who are able to build credibility, authenticity yeah. uh, with an audience and, and share long form quality content. I think that this is going to be very, uh, very important in a Gen AI uh, sphere. But, it, but, it, but it's not easy for, from a company point of view. It's always easier as a personal brand because yeah. you can identify someone. But as a company, like, yeah. Do you know who is the face of Nike, for example? No, I had no idea. Like, yeah. <laughs> so the the it's a it's a different vibe, right? So right. I think I, I totally agree that those companies needs to be a bit more human and connect. Maybe not Nike, but the new startups, like. And uh, but it's difficult to it's difficult to do so. People follow people; they don't follow company. Right, right. I think yeah, I think you're right. But I I also feel that Nike, for example is a customer oriented so i believe that their marketing would take a direction not behind someone but i feel like services based companies yeah, yeah. might be more um but but, but yeah no I, I, I totally agree um um 
So speaking of Nike, I'm going to ask something totally different and not related. <laughs> I want to come back about the jobs. Um, and so you have a lot of experience. Um, so do you have kind of a vision of how, how the demand have been evolved? And do you have tips for people who are facing um, the, the job market? And by tips, I think it could be very interesting if you share some advice from an entry perspective, but also a more advanced perspective, speaking of technical or role in data in general and in AI, it can be a data scientist, data engineer, yeah. etc. Yeah, I think the, the first uh, step is as a fresh starter is just like, getting a view on the job role definition because it's really confusing. I actually did a talk uh, recently about that and probably do a blog and YouTube video. But just understanding the link. data engineering, uh, data science, ML, because if you look at the job offer for same role definition, there is multiple definition uh, different, right? So just grasping what are the foundation for a data engineer, you know, no matter the type of role, and kind of the persona of data engineers, if you're focusing for that, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so having a good view on that uh, will definitely help. And then I would say focus like on on some common frameworks that like high level frameworks, focus on one, two that are really in demand depending on what you're doing, right? And go deep on that in the foundation on how they work, right? So not like just use it, but also how they work and how they're being built. You might not be required to build a tool like this in your job, mm -hmm. but the problem is like what we were mentioning earlier is that uh, the service, everything is serverless, everything is high level. And then people, you know, miss to opportunity to learn foundation, foundation. And when the black box is not working, then they don't know how to, you know, to debug because they don't know what's, what's in it. Right. So, mm -hmm. I think just uh, that's like the biggest mistake I see in some people is just like jumping on frameworks. And I think it's good to maximize your chance to, you know, get a job, uh, but really combine with like, just go deep in, understand how they build it. Maybe look at the open source code if they, they have and, and really go uh, behind the scenes to understand the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. All right. Um... And when, and, and when you reach a more advanced, even more advanced, uh, like level in your career, uh, yeah. I would assume that it is very personalized. I would assume that it depends yeah. really on each person, but do you see some pitfalls maybe that people that are more advanced in their career? I mean, there is the example you just mentioned. Do, do you have any other tips or things that you can think of? I think like from uh, what I've seen is like from senior to staff, for example, there. So in big, uh, in big tech company, a lot mm -hmm. of them like require you to go from, you know, entry level to senior within a certain amount of time, otherwise mm -hmm. bye bye. Uh, but they don't require you. A lot of them don't require you to go from senior to staff because it's kind of different transition where you start to lead things at a higher level and you need more than you, you communication and soft skills are always important, but those are going to shine even more as a staff uh, level because you're going to be the glue between uh, different stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so I think like 
if you want to do a career as an IC, so not as versus as a manager, I think like the next gap, as you say, like when you start to be a senior is to build on those soft skills, like doing presentation, doing writing, because techno, like hard skills uh, to learn. If you've, you know, been there as up to senior, you're going to be able to learn new hard skills. Uh, you know, it's just about if you do continuous learning and you always keep your eyes on, on, on learning things, I think that's going to be easy, but soft skills, like this is something like where you really need to take opportunities, right? It's like, okay, let's apply to talk at this conference or this meetup. Uh, let's do this blog. So this, like, this kind of different opportunity than, than your job itself, I would say as a, mm -hmm. as a technical person. Hmm. I understand. Uh, doing podcast also that works too. <laughs> um, and about the geographic perspective, let's say someone is in Europe uh, or in the US, like how do you see? Because, so, I was discussing with my father uh, the other day, and it feels like uh, we're talking about two very different worlds. <laughs> um, and so I feel like the board is um, more connected than ever in terms of opportunities uh, if we have the right skill sets um, uh, of course like because I mentioned my father um, he doesn't see it like that but I think I would have two questions here first of all uh, what, how would you go about deciding um, where to work for? Do you see any differences in the jobs based on the location? Do you have some insights regarding that? And yes, do you have some insight? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with you. We have way more opportunity than we used to have. Even myself, like I moved to Berlin, like to a physical location to join a technical hub. This is less required now. I've been working full remote for the past two years. I could go actually... Uh, somewhere else so that's definitely true but you have way more competition uh, and it's not hard it's also a bubble there is like the you know the the tech bubble which basically a tech company is a company that's gonna hire at a you know larger border than the national country for example right they're gonna mm -hmm. make people come and relocate it and so they, they look talent worldwide or like at least within the same tie zone or continue for different reasons. There is just more competition to get there. When I started to apply for those companies, this was a way more uh, tedious process to, to get into. So that's, that's like another uh, word. And I, when I mentioned tech word, I'm not even considering FANG. So Google, Facebook, and Netflix, because this is another like level where it's even more uh, competitive to uh, to get over there. So I think you need to understand that. And I think it's totally fine to work at your local, you know, national bank and so on. And there is nice project. It's just like the speed and the opportunity is different and the salary also. So it's like two separate completely word, I would say. Um, so that's kind of the word that you were mentioning. And then the other part, EU versus other yeah, it's, it's really depend. Like now you can start to think abroad if you want to travel. I think working remotely for a US company, unless they have office here, is still challenging. 
but doable. But again, you need to stand out in some ways, right? Uh, so there, there is so much competition. So you need to have a valid reason why they would hire you on the other side of the world, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, with a certain time zone. So think about that. It's like the more you go into tech and the more you evolve, like how can you make the difference and stand out? And for that, like there is a couple of advice is either you look at the industry. So let's say you're really fan about motors. So you stay in the car industry or robot industry and you focus on those type of companies. So you build mm-hmm. industry knowledge. Mm-hmm. Or you build specific knowledge on, you know, on, on, on hard skills, or it can be soft skills too. Um, and, and you find a niche, uh, like that. And the more you niche down, the more you're gonna stand out. Right. Right. Of course you have, may have less opportunity, but in those opportunity, there will be way less candidates. And that's actually the case for, for DevRel, for example. Right. Very interesting. Uh, I feel like, uh, there are many, so many things that I could ask you that, that could uh, generate a lot of value. I hope that um, if you're listening to this, um, you're getting a lot of value and that I'm asking the question that you have in mind. If not, let us know in the comments. Either it's on YouTube or on LinkedIn and we'll answer. Um, so before I ask you the two, two last questions of this episode, um, which basically are uh, to tell a bit more about yourself where people can reach out and if you have a specific message for the Let's Talk AI community, I would love maybe if you can share with us in a few in a few minutes one project that really impacted you or that really taught you something, even either it's technical or the insights that you gain from it. I think it could be very interesting. Yeah, I think uh, I have a data project uh, which is really in the boot, uh, given the macroeconomic situation. So I was joining a scale-up, and um, they were not really looking at the costs. They have funding; things are doing good in the data team. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, like, there was a template of code which was used for multiple pipeline. And in this template, there was a really bad one line of code in Spark. I'm not going to go in details, but you need to understand the internals of Spark mm-hmm. to understand that this line was actually uh, bad for uh, IEO, so the data in and out, and basically slowing the job and making more expensive. It was just mm-hmm. one line within the, the, full, the full pipeline. Mm-hmm. I just removed that because this was useless and basically make uh, saving for about 2k, $2,000 a month, because this was reproduced to, you know, amount a lot of jobs, right. That was running, um, daily. Um, so the point here is that you can be, be curious about your, like on your costs, on your project and your pipeline. That's the beauty of the cloud. You have API for everything you can go and see down. You don't need to have a stakeholder with a fancy project. Just look at your costs. And that's a clear way to add value to basically be able to reduce costs. And it's easy because you have a dollar attached, right? It's not like, oh, we did that campaign with a a model. No, you have dollar against the usage of your pipeline. Mm -hmm. And second is go deep sometime to do those optimization, understand the basics, because like you would be surprised what what it could do with with a little change actually. So I think Mm -hmm. that's like one of my best Best project I'm super proud where it was just removing one line. 
Awesome. It's like this attention to detail that is really implementing and uh, uh, very interesting. Uh, last two questions, uh, but before I want to thank you a lot for coming on the show, maybe. Um, um, I had an amazing time and I feel like that I've learned a lot. So I hope everyone let us know in the comment, like I said, but cool. I've learned a lot and uh, on, on very interesting topics that are not talked about enough from my perspective. Um, how can people reach out, learn more about you, your blogging, your content? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, the entry point would be my website where I have all the links. So it's mehd.io. So there is a different links. I'm mostly going to focus on uh, YouTube and LinkedIn. So this is where you can follow me, but there is also my blogs. Uh, but yeah, my main entry point, I would say LinkedIn and, and, uh, and YouTube. Awesome. Uh, last question. Would you have a message for the Let's Talk AI community? No, I, um, I mean, it's, it's difficult. Uh, but it can be, it uh, can be personal, no, professional. <laughs> um, I think, I think if I would have one message, it's just stay curious. So if you manage to, uh, go to up to the end of this podcast. Wow. Congrats. I think I'm not sure. I, I hope the time was valuable, but the good thing is that you you've been staying curious the whole time. And I think that's the most important part in your career is that staying curious help us to uh, try new things, to uh, learn new things. And this is really one skill that's really hard to evaluate when you interview someone. But I think it's really valid to, to keep it. Awesome. If you're still here at this moment in the video, put the fire emoji on the comments so that we can see you and know that you're curious. Um, thanks a lot, Mehdi, and I wish you to have a wonderful day. See you. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.